Um, so um, we find ourselves in the very last uh, point of our vision series, um, authentic worship. And uh, when we come to this, I, really, I, worship is a word that has been hijacked. Um, I mean, it, it, we, we, throw that, we throw that word around like it's, it's, it's for any, anything and everything. Uh, but in reality, we can say that we worship things, but it, we only actually worship one. Um, you can say that you worship many, many things. You can, you can, you can say that, you know, I, I really do have an affection for just, but I find myself really wrapped up in these other things. But in reality, it's only possible for us to worship one thing. And earlier this week, I wrote in a little article um, about what, what identifies what we worship, and it's based on value. Um, the thing that we supreme, supremely value is what we will worship. Um, there are other values that can fall there. One of the illustrations that I used was a very simple one, that um, in my house, if someone were to break in my home to try to harm me and my wife, the very first thing that I would do is aim to protect her safety above my own. My values then determine my actions. Do you see what I'm saying? That my aim is to protect her because I value her life above my own. She is a high value, but she is not my supreme value. That everything that, you're, that everything you do in your entire life ultimately will find itself um, reflecting on what you supremely value. And so what I want to do this morning is walk you through who uh, Christians aim and Christians say that we supremely value. Because I'm convinced that one of the major issues that we have in our churches is that we don't know who we are to worship. That we have this kind of grand idea of God that, that, that really is formed by um, perhaps uh, tradition, formed by um, thoughts, or even by our own emotional understanding of certain things. But what we find in the scriptures is a very clear picture of who the target of our worship is to be. And we even find a great illustration um, flowing from this passage. Isaiah chapter 6, um, an incredible, incredible passage, lofty passage. So if you would, um, in honor of the reading of God's word, would you please stand? Isaiah chapter 6, and it says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and two with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for this glimpse that you give us of that great throne room. And as we come, as we try to just get a full picture of what we see here to understand who it is that should be object of our highest value, our greatest affection, our greatest love, and, and should be the one who we devote our greatest obedience to, Lord. Let us be able to see clearly, and I ask, because this is, uh, I am but a frail man trying to break down a passage that is far beyond um, our ability. But Lord, as we look, would you reveal Christ to us? Would you show us the beauty of this passage, and may you stir up in our hearts a deeper value and affection for our great King. It is in the name of Christ and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. Isaiah chapter 6. This is, in my opinion, one of the major marks of Isaiah. I mean, if, when you think about the book of Isaiah, you're almost immediately going to think of this grand vision that Isaiah gets, where he is able to see the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. 
And what, I'm, what I really would want to point out to you first and foremost, we're going to look at how we are to worship. But the very first thing we have to understand is who we are to worship. And then also my hope is that as we walk through this passage within our hearts, we may have a deeper longing and a desire to worship this great king. Because I'm convinced that we have a very low view of God. And if, what, if, if the God that we say we serve is the God that we find in Isaiah chapter 6, I would argue, and I think the only consistent thing that we can do if this is the God that we say we serve, is to give him our full devotion. One of the greatest foolishnesses is that we say we believe in this God, this God who's high and lifted up, the one who's able to pure, purify us and atone for our sin. This is the God we say we serve, and yet we're able to give him half devotion. It's foolishness. You can say you don't believe in the God of the Bible. Okay. Then, I'll, then sure, you can, you can give a half devotion to whatever God you perhaps have created in your own mind. But the God of the Bible demands full devotion. And if we say that we believe in him, the only thing that we can actually give to him or aim to give to him is absolute full devotion. That all of our value, everything that we do, the way that we live our lives should be rooted in who he is and what he has demanded from us. I love this song, it's your breath in our lungs. That the only appropriate response to him giving us breath is to naturally exhale praise to the one who has given us that breath. That if he is the true king, that if he is the true sovereign over the world, that if he is the one who has atoned for our sin, our only response response in a rational and logical manner is to say, you deserve my full devotion. Not part, not half, all of it. And, and I am convinced that if we say that we don't give him our full devotion, that perhaps what we are doing is worshiping something that we have created in our own mind, not the God of the scriptures, but perhaps a God that over the years of your life you have crafted for yourself. And so let's look at Isaiah chapter 6. Let's consider what Isaiah sees and then his response. So Starting in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. So let's just stop right there because this is the first thing that we see here. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. This, this throne is this thing we, we're going to see in the future and it's going to be a glorious thing to see that great God and King seated upon that throne. But the very first thing that this makes us realize is this King is actually in control, that he is the, the, the true high King of heaven that he is the one sovereign, that he is the authority over all creation. I quoted this before and I'll quote it again. There's no place men hate God more than on his throne. When we consider that this God is the one that is actually seated upon the throne, that he is the first and foremost, the object of all worship in heaven. Let's just stop right there. At the whole purpose, where he's sitting, we see this uh, in verse 2, above him to the seraphim. And then it says, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The one who is seated on the throne is the only one who is to receive worship and praise in heaven. That God and king is the sole, the sole object of worship in heaven. And if that be the case, and we're going to see this in a minute, I would argue that even more so, he should be the sole object of worship in the church. That he alone is the one who should receive worship and praise and honor. And so he is the sovereign king of all things. That he is majestic in his, I love the, la- the language here, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This idea of train is this, this glory, this majesty, I believe is how it's actually translated. There's a uniqueness, there's this, as you approach him, there's this timidness. And, and whenever I think about it, I think about uh, a period in my life where I did this, I just love to whitewater raft. I'd approach um, the... Um, the boat to get in, and there's almost this timidness, but excitement, right? You walk up and you see this rapid that you know you're going to hit, and it's going to be a joy, but at the exact same time, if you fall out, it'll kill you. Majesty. Majesty is the idea of something so beautiful, but it's also fearful. It's got some weight to it. 
And, and, and one of the greatest illustrations I hear people use is walking up to the Grand Canyon. You look at it and it's incredible. There's great majesty and beauty, but if you should so dare trip, you would find yourself at the bottom of it dead. There's strength, power, and authority. And that's what we find here at the throne room of God, that these angels are looking at him and they are saying, yes, you are, you are perfect, you are holy, you are just, but you notice what they're doing. They're covering their eyes. They understand where they are. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament of men who would approach the throne room of God in an unworthy manner, that they would approach the holy of holies, they would enter in and quickly they would be put to death because they were not coming in a manner worthy. So this idea of worshiping God first and foremost is a privilege. Friends, if we don't come in a worthy manner, then we're gonna walk into a room and and, and either one of two things are gonna happen. Number one, we're gonna walk into that room and it's not actually the throne room of God. It's some throne room we've created for ourselves, or we're gonna approach in an unworthy manner late, probably at the day of judgment. And he's going to say, away with me, you evildoer, I never knew you. But for those of us, those saints who have come in the worthy manner through the blood of Christ and we're able to enter into that throne and we're able to enjoy the grand privilege of worshiping the high king of heaven, the one who is the object of soul worship in heaven, the one who is majestic, there is a timidness, a, a fearfulness about approaching him, but still, nonetheless, we approach with confidence. And so listen to what they call out here in verse three. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And this is where I want to camp out for a little bit. You see, whenever we consider the word holy, the very first thing that more often than not comes to mind is an otherness, that he is separate from us, that he is distinct from us. The issue is this cannot be used because he was holy before we ever came to be. There's a uniqueness, a beauty, a majesty about this great God. That holiness is not just something that he, uh, that he has, but it is in himself, his nature. A couple weeks ago, we talked about he is love, that he, he himself is the possessor of love. It is his, he, it, is, it is of him. It is not a, an attribute of him, but it is literally his person. That he, any love that is experienced is ultimately bestowed from him. In the exact same way, what we have here is this idea of holiness, of majesty, of power and might. And that idea of holiness is something that we, I'm gonna be honest with you, fail to grasp and I will confess to you one of the greatest fears of preaching is approaching the topic of God's holiness it is weighty that there's something so other we look at it and we call it moral perfection yes he is morally perfected he is light and in him is no darkness at all there is no shadow or variance of change he is perfect he is without blemish yes he is all of those things then we can look at holiness as a manner that, that many would tremble at. That that same idea of, uh, of holiness being separate, being completely other, being, um, being perfectly just and righteous, can you imagine approaching that without having someone to plead your case? And yet what we're called to do is to walk into that throne room gladly each and every day of our lives. And so the, the holiness of God, it should cause some trembling in us. And I'm convinced that it really does it more often than not. That when we approach him, I, I see these shirts from time to time and they make me want to explode um, that like Jesus is my homeboy and that kind of stuff and I promise you I want to like burn their shirt on them when I see that because it's, it's horribly inappropriate we forget who we're approaching generally I mean like when we think that we're going to approach Jesus in this very light manner that we're not coming um, where we can just kind of stroll up to him that we're not we're not reverencing and honoring his actual person we've forgotten and this is where I'm saying that I'm convinced that we have created a God that is separate from the God that we find here if he is holy and righteous if he's perfect and flawless that throughout all of the ages angels are saying around his, his throne holy 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 things that this title we would ascribe to angels 
Wouldn't we? We would see, can you imagine we would see an angel and almost immediately, we find this all throughout the Old Testament, even the New, when men see angels, more often than not, they bow quickly before them because holiness that, that, that radiates off them, that God has bestowed to them, causes us great discomfort. It causes us discomfort. And so as they're seeing this, they're saying, we're, we have no holiness we're completely other, like we're, we're, we're not even worthy to be compared to you. You are so different. You are so radiant. I'm telling you, the very first chapter of Hebrews points out the fact that men, for some reason or another, find themselves worshiping angels from time to time. And the whole purpose of Hebrews 1 is to point out the fact that the angels are not worthy of your worship. They possess no holiness. Holiness is not beauty. It's not beauty. It's something different. It's this glorious weight that is in the presence of God. And my prayer is that as we look at this passage and we un- maybe we'll get a glimpse of the holiness of God, that friends, if you were to approach him in an unworthy manner, you would find yourself nothing but dead. That's holiness. Men who attempted to even grab the ark to prevent it from hitting the ground, still that holiness crushed him. He knew he wasn't supposed to touch it. In the exact same way, one of the beauties that we find because of the finished work of Jesus is we find this grand invitation to enter into his holiness, to say, hey, I want you to come and I want you to enjoy the throne room of God. And even in Hebrews chapter 10, it points out, I want you to do this with hearts full of assurance and full of confidence. How then can we approach this holy and just God, the one who, because of his moral perfection, cannot look on sin in a way where he's going to permit it and allow it to be. Instead, when he sees it, he will deal with it in a just and righteous manner. How then can we walk into that presence and say, we're going to have authentic worship here. Well, we find this very clearly in the text. It's an interesting thing that the the holiness of God actually does in the saints. Look at verse four. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Verse five, and I said, this is Isaiah. Let's consider who this man is real quickly. We forget who this guy is. Isaiah is a prophet of God, even to the point where many people call the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel. That when we look at the Old Testament, it's such a clear presentation of, I mean, you look at the the beginning of the book and you see very clear condemnation, guilt, justice. Then there's this grand shift where all of a sudden there's grace, there's there's, there's hope for those who were once condemned. They call it the fifth gospel because it, it, it faithfully preaches Christ. And so as we look at this in verse 6, I want you to see this prophet, this one whom God has used to proclaim the excellencies of the Messiah that is to come. Listen to what he says about himself in light of the holiness of God. Verse 5, and I said, woe is me. Let's just consider who he is real quickly. The prophet of God, he's saying woe, meaning I am ruined, I am broken, I am, I am messed up, I am filthy, I am not worthy to be here. He quickly realizes that. And we would all do well to do the exact same thing that Isaiah does. That when we ever have the grand privilege, frankly, of even sitting before the scriptures, opening them and allowing God to speak to us through his infallible word, then one of the great things that we should find ourselves doing is how unworthy are we to receive this blessed gift that God has given to us, that he has inspired his holy, his perfect, his flawless word, that he would give life to his people, that he would preach Christ to us, that he would show us the glories of himself when he could have simply remained completely and totally unknowable. Remember, the only way for us to know the God of the Scriptures is Him to reveal Himself. It is a kindness from Him. It is not something that we have a right to. It is a privilege that He gives to His church. 
And so it's, it, he reveals himself in his word, and, and we should find ourselves saying with Isaiah in verse 5, woe is me, because as we stand and as we sit in the light of the holiness of God, we should realize how unworthy we actually are, how ruined we are. And he even continues to point out, for I am lost. Now listen to this language. This is humor. I mean, I, I, the first time I read this and understood it, I literally just laughed. For I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah, the prophet. The one who was given tasks specifically with speaking the words of God to his people, the prophet. And he noticed, it's, it's interesting. I mean, he could have said hands. He could have said, I mean, he could have said anything. That thing that was most sanctified in him, ruined. That's the full measure of the holiness of God. The things that we think are the best about us. We, we've, we've set those things aside to the Lord that even then as we stand in, the, in, the, in front of the holiness of God, we say ruined. Ruined. And it's important that we find ourselves here because we're not going to savor the next part if we don't understand this. When Isaiah comes and says, woe is me for I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, he even points out the nation that he's dwelling in. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For I, listen to this, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's seen God, and from that, that the holiness that radiates from him point, clearly indicates to him how unworthy he actually is to be there. Even the best parts of himself are not fit to stand before this holy, perfect, majestic king. And here we have this. This is, this is the, the beauty of this. Verse 6, the, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And my argument here this morning is that for us to understand the beauty of authentic worship, we must first do two things. First of all, we must say the same thing about ourselves that God says. That that basically is the understanding of repentance, of saying, Look, I know that everything that I am is, is what you say it is. That means that I'm altogether worthless. That means that I do not seek after you. I do not love you. The only way that I can do that is by you doing a work in me and making me able to do that because I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. And so when God in his infinite kindness draws us to himself, we still have a a major issue. We can't stand before the throne. If he were to simply draw us into his presence, we would simply find a swift death there because we are unholy, unrighteous, and the good king of heaven will punish sin. But the beauty of this passage is not the the drawing and bringing Isaiah to this beautiful vision of the high king of heaven. No, it's actually purifying him that he might actually enjoy it. I mean, have you considered for just a minute, we who are strangers, we who are enemies of God, haters of God. Uh, Romans chapter 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We don't want to do it. And all of a sudden, our greatest delight is to be in his presence, is to bask in his glory, to enjoy him forever. How does this happen? How do we approach the throne, although with great fear and trembling, but at the exact same time, great hope and comfort that we are in the presence of our great affection, our supreme value. And there is only one way. It is being purified by the finished work of Christ. And let me submit to you a couple of, and I will confess to you these are opinions, but I think these are opinions very thoroughly rooted in the scriptures. So looking at verse seven, it says this. And he touched my mouth and said, I will only jump back to verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. So we're looking at the heavenly altar. This is where blood was shed, okay? Let's consider that for just a minute. We're going to go back there. Verse 7. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, 
And the basic argument is this. What blood was shed on that altar? The altar of heaven. Do you think that the blood that Christ would drop his blood on would be stained and sullied by the blood of goats and bulls? No. Never. I dare say that if anyone made the attempt in heaven, they would be quickly cast out. For that altar was set for the perfect righteous one to shed his blood. Secondly, I am convinced that the blood of goats and bulls cannot take away sin. By no means can it. Hebrews makes it abundantly clear. It says it explicitly. The blood of goats and bulls cannot take away sin. But in verse 7, we see this. And he touched my mouth, and behold, uh, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. What can actually atone for man's sin? Only the blood of Christ is able to do that. So I'm convinced what we find here is that Isaiah is able to enter into the presence of God, not because he is perfect and righteous, but because the Father has allowed him that privilege and made it possible for him to enjoy it, made it possible for him to be enthralled and captivated by the beauty and the glory of God that he doesn't have to come in and fear and say, woe is me for I am of unclean lips. And I want you to know this. It says your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Notice where he touches with this, your lips, that even the best, the worst, everything, Every bit of you all of a sudden is atoned for. It is completely and totally clean. You come before me and you enjoy my presence forevermore. This is what it means to worship. How then, if this is the God that we say we worship, how then can we look at him and say, I'm only going to give you half of my devotion? Just, just take this part. Just take my Sundays, my Wednesdays. Just take my, my, my five minutes, my 15 minutes, my 30 minutes in the Bible. That's, that's the time you have. And I submit to you that it simply cannot be the case can't be the case. If this is the God that we find seated in the throne of heaven that claims our life, that rescues us with the blood of his perfect son, he demands nothing but our full and wholehearted and glad devotion. He demands to be our supreme value. And so, with that being the case, the question is, how do we do it? How do, we, how do we worship? I mean, how, what does that look like? I mean, like I said, we've, there's so many different theories, like these weird theories of worship and, um, and, and like ideas and, and even where we can say like, well, these people worship in this way, so let's take a little bit of that and, and kind of bring it in. And really, ultimately, that's what the Catholic Church is. It's called Civilization. They took different practices all throughout the regions that they evangelized synchronized them into the Christian religion, but that's not the case at all. God has prescribed how he is to be worshiped. In the very first one, I would say this. This is the natural response to being rescued and brought into the family of God to be able to enjoy him. In verse 8, it says this. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. The immediate, and I would argue immediate, response of those who have been rescued by the blood of Jesus, those who have come to enjoy his presence and long to be in it, gladly go wherever he says go. It is the idea of obedience as worship. When we look at our mission statement, again, it's a very simple mission statement. Follow Jesus, make disciples. The, 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 the way that we long to authentically worship is by being obedient to the cause that he set out for us. Follow Jesus. Gladly I'll do that because I want to be in his presence. I want to enjoy him. He's my supreme value. Make disciples. Well, obedience means that I want to bring people into that. I mean, how can I say that the greatest value of my life is Christ and I don't want other people to experience it? That's absolute foolishness. And, 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 and frankly, all it does is indicate that he is not the supreme value of my life. If he is, then we long for people to enjoy him with us. And so as we look at this basic idea, if we want to be obedient, if we say, Lord, whatever you send me, I'm going to do it. And that's my act of worship to you. I'm going to give you absolutely every area of my life. 
And that flows us and brings us into Romans chapter 12, where it very explicitly says that, uh, what is our spiritual act of worship. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there, Romans 12, verse 1. I'm going to let you look at it, so I'm going to take a minute. This was my, like, sophomore, junior year of high school verse that wrecked me. I mean, it really did. It shifted everything about me because all of a sudden I realized that if I say that I worship Jesus, it doesn't mean that I sing a song on Sunday morning or simply just show up. Listen to what it says. This is in light of everything that's come in Romans so far. In Romans, he's already identified that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Then he goes in to clarify that you have been rescued, you've been brought into the family of God. Then he makes reference that you're dead to sin, you can't live in it any longer. And it's leading into Romans chapter 12 where he's going to say, okay, now it's time to, to act. Now it's time to live. Here's the, how you should think. Here's how live. So in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So let me ask you a question. As the Israelites would have read this, when they read the words living sacrifice, do you think they would have noticed a redundant? Like, like that just, it's kind of an irony, isn't it? Living sacrifice. Now, they understand both of those things. They understand sacrifice for sure because they've watched animals be slaughtered. They've, they've brought them themselves. Here is my sacrifice for my sin. Here's all of the, the, the things that I have committed in rebellion against God. Here they are. I want you to kill this animal for me so that I can be free from the guilt that I'm feeling. Well, Paul's already laid out the fact that you're, you're free from your guilt. You've been bought with the price, so there's no longer a need to bring sacrifices to be, to be put to death. But now, all of a sudden, what I need is, um, is simply, how, do I, how am I to live? If, if that's the case, there's nothing that I'm to do to save myself. There's nothing I'm to do to atone for my sin. If Jesus did it all, what then am I to do? And Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And ultimately what he's telling you is die and live. Die and live. The great cry of the Christian faith is die so that you might live. If we say we love Jesus, if he's our great treasure and joy, and he says, I need you to put to death everything in you that longs for glory, longs for worship, longs for anything apart from me, I need you to put that to death. Let it die. Romans chapter 8 makes it abundantly clear. Put to death the misdeeds of the flesh by the Spirit. So first and foremost, when we say spiritual uh, living sacrifice, that there should be a sacrifice in saying all of my wicked ways before me, I'm putting them to death, I'm setting them aside because you alone are worthy of my affection and my obedience. All of those things are away, they're dead. And then secondly, it is this idea of glory and worship. And friends, let me be honest with you, the very first thing that you will long to worship other than Jesus is yourself. Every time. It's, I mean, really... And we, we even say we craft idols. And, and, and there's, there's truth to that. But more often than not, the idols that we say we crafted are simply a means to, to, to bring ourselves pleasure and enjoyment. It's really about us. It's always about us. We love glory. We love worship. We love to be honored and revealed and revered because that is what ultimately the fall was about. I, I can be my own God. I can be the object of my own worship. And friends, if that's the case, then I would argue that you have not actually put to death this part of you. And I'm going to confess to you, it is the single most difficult part of the human heart to kill. Sin will die a little bit easier than longing for my own glory. It will. 
Because when one sin's dead, another one will often present itself. But the, the, the difficulty is saying, Lord, I, I, don't want, I don't want my own glory. Every area of my life, everything that I do, I want to result in your praise and your honor and your honor alone. And whenever I think about this, this interesting moment, that happens uh, at the Day of Atonement. There was this idea of transference. There was this placing of a hand over a goat or a bull or whatever the sacrifice may be. And they would place their hand on it and confess their sins over the nation. I mean, over, confess the sins of the nation over this creature and, and transfer, ultimately, give over those sins to that creature as they are about to be killed. But I'm convinced what we do is as we say we love to be a living sacrifice, there are parts of ourselves that we refuse to give over. We will claim them, we will keep them because God has no business with them. They're mine. And it goes back to that idea. If the God that we find in Isaiah chapter 6 is the God that we say we supremely value, how can we say, I'm keeping this for myself? We can't. We fundamentally can't. That's why having a proper understanding of the God of the Scriptures is so vitally important. He spurs us on to worship. For a proper view of Him dramatically changes the way that we live. It has to. And so as we grow in our knowledge of God, naturally, naturally, we will grow in steadfast love and faithfulness to him. We will grow in our worship, in our longing for worship, and in our glad sacrificing of our own glory and fame and of our own sin and pleasures for his fame and for his glory. This is our spiritual act of worship. We put to death everything that is who we are, and we gladly say Christ and his glory is the single great affection and cry of my heart. That's what identifies us as Christians. When people look at you, they should see very clearly, why is it that you live your life so dramatically different? And so we want to do this because it is our holy and acceptable worship to God. And so, I mean, this is the lifestyle thing, okay? It's ultimately what I'm getting at here. That the life of the believer should look so dramatically different from the life of the world that it should provoke people to ask questions. And I, and, and I hear people from time to time say, you know, that doesn't actually work. It does. It does. A holy life is weird, strange, and awkward to the lost. Now, I would confess to you that you better be quick to speak for the gospel must go out. But my friends, if people don't ever look at you a little differently, I would ask you, do you really aim for holiness in your life? Do you really aim to be set apart? Do you aim to be the, the obedient to the high king of heaven, this one that we see in Isaiah chapter 6? And if so, I'm convinced that we will indeed look incredibly different and that people might long to know the king that we have. Lastly, perhaps the one that we are most familiar with, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 15. This passage is in regard to how we worship in community with one another. Because I'm convinced, one of the, and I, I can speak from experience, out of from just an incredibly exhausting week. The greatest joy is gathering with other believers and being encouraged in Christ together. The the beauty of coming on a Sunday morning is it's a time for the church to gather. When I say the church, I mean the saints. I mean those who are in Christ. That it is a time for us to gather together, to love each other, to care for each other, and to worship Jesus together. It is meant to be a time of refreshing and encouragement so that we might be faithful in the world. Uh, A friend of mine uh, always said... um, he said he just hated, hated that the church is a hospital for the sick. He just hated that terminology. He said it's not. He said it's a, it's a barrack for soldiers. I love that language. That the idea of a Sunday morning service is, yes, maybe we are ill, but we're rescued and redeemed. 
What we desperately need is people to equip us that we might be faithful to be good soldiers, laborers for Christ as we leave this place. It's meant to be a place of worship together. So let's look at verse uh, 15 of chapter 5 of Ephesians. It says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now listen to verse 19. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. How do we work that out in community? The entire passage of Ephesians 5 is what does the Christian life look like? When you've taken off the old things, you've put on the new, how then are we to live? What does that look like for us? And in verse 19, it says this, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord for, with, with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what you'll see in verse 19 is naturally it must occur in community. So it says this, addressing one another. This is meant to happen inside of the community of the church. And and let me be honest with you. For some reason... We've, we've, we've taken the worship of Sunday morning where we come together, we sing songs, we hear uh, the word go out. We've taken it and we've kind of we've moved it to the side. We say it's not very important, it's not very valid. Friends, it's explicitly valid. We are to gather, we are to encourage one another by worshiping together. It is a natural response to the king that we see in Isaiah chapter 6, that we long to gather to praise him and exalt him for who he is together, to view him together. And so what you see is this idea of addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let's just talk about that real quickly. The basic idea is that we come together and we discuss not only the scriptures together, but we delight in them. This is an idea of a stirring of affections. We we, we either overemphasize the affections of the human heart to the point where truth doesn't matter, or we remove affections just for the sake of, or, or for the sake of, let's be very, very rigid here and just be completely focused on truth. Friends, if truth does not provoke a remo- an emotional response, if it's not something that you value and cherish, then I would argue that you can say that this truth is applied to you. But if it does not impact your heart and stir your affections, then there is something crucially wrong. Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist, Perhaps you're familiar with his sermon. I had to read it in high school, and, I, and I'll be honest, I read it in high school, and I was like, let's just get done with this, which is crazy now because I find myself reading him rather frequently. I wrote an entire book called a tr- treatise on uh, treatise of religious affections that the heart should, in light of the truth that is revealed by God to man, in light of gathering together and celebrating truth together, that the heart should be stirred. There should be a great affection in our heart. And friends, let me ask you a question. Do you think Isaiah, as he viewed this great God and King who purified him of his sin, do you think he walked away lighthearted? No. No, he didn't walk away lighthearted. How, how could you walk away lighthearted in light of the complete view of the glory of God and the purity that he has given you? We are fools if we think we walk away lighthearted, not, not, not emotional, not stirred in our affections. And this beautiful idea of gathering together and addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It is the only natural response for the saint to gather and do this in community. One of my professors always said, you'll find every good Christian in church on Sunday morning. Now, I know that may ruffle feathers, and I understand there are reasons that you might not be here. But as a general rule, this rings true. The saints love to gather together because we love to enjoy Jesus together. 
And I know that there can be difficulties in getting here. There may be strife that might erupt in your life, or maybe there's some grand excuse. But friends, if you don't long to gather with the body, there's something wrong probably with your view of your king. And so we see this beautiful picture of giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this flows into marriage, but the the basic idea is this. There are three major things that have to occur in worship. First and foremost is a longing for obedience to the one whom you serve. If we don't long to be obedient, that is a, a rejection of worship to him. It is ultimately looking at him and saying, my way is better than yours. This happened in the garden. If you'd like to see a very clear example of it. Number two, it's saying, everything I am, my own glory, my own, my own pleasures, whatever that may be, I'm putting it to death because you must be my supreme pleasure and value. And lastly, it comes out in our mouths, it comes out in our emotions, our hearts should be stirred to affection, to love Jesus more, and we should have a longing to, at the exact same time, when our truth hits us and we're able to say, yes, because of what Christ has revealed to me, I long to worship him in community that we should find ourselves here on a Sunday morning to sing loudly the praises of Jesus, for he alone is worthy. He alone is worthy. And so I would submit to you that if for some reason your worship is wanting, it is very likely not because you don't like to gather on a Sunday morning. It's not probably because you love your sin, even though that's a great reason. But I would argue that the greatest reason that our worship is found wanting, it's not the thing that we love to do above everything else, is because we have a low or false view of the God that we serve. The truth that we find in Scripture demands a response. That response is always worship. Always. Never should it provoke anything else in the human heart. It should provoke us to say, yes, Lord, you are good. Even if we're reading through the story of Job and we see as he takes away, but still we rest very comfortably in that as we look at God maybe dealing with us in a difficult way. We say, but, but still, you alone are worthy. You alone are where my heart is set, my affections are. And so my prayer is for you this morning that as we consider the idea of worship, that we might very gladly and loudly sing the praises of Christ here, and that, and that might be echoed in the way that we live the remainder of the week. Because if it's only here, that's not the God we see in Scripture. That's not what he's worthy of every area of our life. And so, my hope and prayer is that we might have a grand view of the high king of heaven, that we might love him dearly, and that we might serve him faithfully.